Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Luke chapter 22. Last audio I discussed Jesus' admonition to the disciples not to deny him when the going got rough. This is where Peter said he would follow Jesus to the death, and Jesus said, no, you're going to deny me before the cock crows. You're going to deny me three times. And then, and now in this audio, we are going to talk about the actual institution of the Lord's Supper. This is Luke 22:17 through 20. Luke records the events of the Last Supper out of time order, as both the NIV Study Bible and A.T. Robertson say. And so we're dropping back as in the scriptures. We're, we're taking it in time order. The scriptures we're going to cover are 17 through 20. The scriptures we covered last audio were Luke 22, 31 through 38. So we're going out of the scripture order, but we're not going out of time order. Now the parallels of the institution of the Lord's Supper can be found in Mark 14, verses 22 through 25. I've already done some teaching on that in a previous audio. I'm going to splice that audio in this audio in just a minute. There's another parallel in Matthew 26, 26 through 29, which I've looked at already, and in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. It's not a gospel parallel, but it's where Paul talks about the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now, after, so at now I am going to splice in my discussion of Mark 14, verses 22 through 25, and that splice begins now. The first thing we need to say about the institution of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper is the timing of it. Robertson has a note that Luke has it in a different time order than Mark does, but he thinks that it's best to do the way Mark does it, which is after the departure of, of Judas, and so I will assume that Judas has left. It makes more sense. that I can't think of Judas sitting there eating the Lord's Supper with the disciples. It's, it's offensive, somehow offensive to me to even think about that. So we're going to assume that. I'll read starting in verse 22 of Mark 14, going through verse 26. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and so they all drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many. I assure you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in a new way in the kingdom of God. After singing psalms, he went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, before I get into this, let me say that thousands of books have been written about the Lord's Supper, especially about transubstantiation, consubstantiation, John Calvin's spiritual real presence view, and Zwingli's alleged memorial view. Let me just say I believe that I believe Calvin was right, that the Holy Spirit was there at the meal as people ate, but I don't believe all this hocus-pocus about the bread and the wine changing, the accidents of the blood and the wine disappearing, but the substance changing, excuse me, the accidents remaining, but the substance changing and all that stuff, I think that's that's was invented by philosophers with too much time on their hands, and also invented by a church structure, namely the Catholic structure that wanted to keep all power in the hierarchy, in the priestly hierarchy, and what better way to do that than say, we have the power to say hocus-pocus, in hoc verbis, or whatever the words of institution are in Latin, ring the bell, and we've got the power to turn that bread and wine into into the body and blood of Jesus to give you your salvation. I am a low church guy. I don't believe in that nonsense. So I'm going to assume that Calvin was right. I don't believe it's just a memorial. I believe the Holy Spirit, Spirit Jesus actually in the by through means of his Holy Spirit actually visits Christians as we eat the Lord's Supper. Now I'm going to mention a few things that are a little bit off the mainstream to get your minds thinking a little bit about the Lord's Supper. I've done a lot of teaching on this. I've got a video on it. In fact, it's in my house church playlist on YouTube, Pretty Good Bible Studies, YouTube. Look on the house church, Lord's Supper, 
and I've got all kind of stuff, PowerPoints and such. But I, and I'm not going to go through it all, but I'm going to mention some of it as we go through. The first thing I want to mention is something that I have come up with on my own. I do not like creative theology any more than I like creative accounting because it can end you up in jail or in trouble. But the kingdom of God, Jesus says, I will drink it in a new way in the kingdom of God, in a new way. What does that mean, in a new way in the kingdom of God? I have, when, when does the kingdom of God come? Well, we know the kingdom of God is already not yet. It was established at Pentecost. So the church is here, the kingdom of God. So Jesus doesn't drink the Lord's Supper with us when we eat. I just finished saying that I believe that Calvin was right, that he came with us. And I believe that he's talking, he's talking metaphorically. He doesn't literally drink wine, but he's with us there in the Lord's Supper as we eat. And if you say that that's too much spiritualization for your literalist mindset, I'll point out to you that God on the Mount, on Mount Sinai, when the Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments were given and, Joseph, and uh, Moses had... Uh, Moses had Joshua up there and the elders and so forth, and they ate a meal. It said God ate a meal with Moses. Well, God didn't eat a meal because God doesn't have a mouth. He's a spiritual being, but he was there. So I think this is sort of a reference to that, and I think that Jesus is there with us now in the kingdom of God. In other words, I think that the typical futurist orientation of the Lord's Supper when people say we're going to sit down and eat with Jesus at the end is doesn't give short shrift to the fact that the kingdom is now for one thing another thing it bothers me is how in the world is jesus going to sit down with several billion people and eat the lord's supper all at the same time I mean, jesus has a body he's in heaven now with a body and we're going to have bodies and we're going to sit down a billion people and eat the lord's supper with him i don't think so but anyway that's my contribution i'll let you think about that now a few details that we get from matthew and luke first of all in luke it says he, he gave thanks over the meal, and Matthew and Mark, it says he blessed. The Greek word never says you bless the food, bless the bread. It just says bless. The King James, in fact, has it correctly translated. It just says when he had blessed. No object. You either bless God or you are blessed. If you bless God, that means you're giving thanks to him. You're praising him. But you don't bless bread. That's a priestly, sacerdotal type idea. You don't do that. You just bless God. You give thanks to him. It's a different Greek word actually here in Luke where it says he had given thanks. He gave thanks before the meal, and if you want some precedence for when you pray over your reg before your regular meals, this is a good one. I mean, the Jews did it. Jesus did it before the Lord's Supper, so why can't we do it before our meals? Let me read what it says in Luke 22. This is the passage that most people read when they administer the Lord's Supper in churches today because it's, it's fuller. Verse 17 in Luke 22, and he received a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. It is for I say unto you, I will not drink from henceforth of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, and so forth. Do it in remembrance of me. Now, in Luke, there's two cups mentioned. Now, the Jewish Passover had four cups, and they all have names. I looked on the websites to get the names of these four cups that the Jews had, and it was all kinds of different names, so I guess it's not standard. But they were, And most people, from what I read, said the third cup is... Luke mentions two cups, and the, the second cup that he mentions was the third cup of the Passover meal. We only have one cup today. And by the way, this is the last Passover and the first Lord's Supper... There's some parallels, but there's some differences, too. So we don't want to get slavishly tied down to what they did in the Jewish Lord's Supper, in the Jewish Passover meal and say that we need to do that in the Lord's Supper. That's not going to fly. We can't do that. One other comment here. 
John, excuse me, the other pa- parallel passage, it's actually not a gospel, it's, it's not John, it's uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, and Paul is talking about what he received from Jesus about how to do the Lord's Supper. He says that this Lord's Supper should be done in remembrance of me, the breaking of the body, the bread for the body, and the drinking of the wine in remembrance of me. Now, this is an interesting thing. I had a friend of mine, well, there was a guy that got a master's degree from my seminary, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, now known as Trinity Seminary. He wrote a book on the Lord's Supper. He's, he's Dr. Eric Vinson, and I got a copy of that book, and I read it, and I was convinced by it, and I had a friend of mine who was also a friend with Dr. Svensson who bought into this and would explain at conferences, house church, I did 14 annual house church conferences, and at every one of these conferences, not to mention numerous seminars, my friend would go through the Greek here and say, the Greek does not really mean do this in remembrance for me. It's better translated as do this as a reminder to me. And I didn't know Greek at the time, and so it kind of went over my head, and I thought, well, yeah, you could translate it either way. It must be because all the versions translate it this way. But I've been learning some Greek, and, and just the other day I ran through the Greek of this passage. There's two pronouns uh, one is mu, which which is the genitive of a personal pronoun, uh, the personal pronoun, first person personal pronoun, and it could mean do this in remembrance of me, the genitive there of me, or it could me mean do this as a reminder, do this as my reminder. Of me can be my, and remembrance can be translated as reminder because a remembrance is bringing something of the past back to your memory back to your mind, and a reminder is to bring to your mind something that's going to happen in the future. The word is ambiguous. It could be either way. And I thought, well, okay, there's another personal pronoun. That pronoun is emos, that uh, the other personal pronoun, which is used here, and that cannot mean of me. It has to be my. That's the way you translate that, my. So it really ought to be do this as my reminder. Well, now, that's some interesting theological stuff there. And then my friend goes on to say that all the other covenants, this is the new covenant, right? But all the other covenants have a reminder, have a sign for reminder. For example, Abraham was circumcised. That was a reminder to God to be faithful to the covenant people. The Mosaic covenant had a reminder. That was the Sabbath day that reminds God to keep the covenant with Israel. And then Noah's covenant had a reminder. That was the rainbow, never to destroy the world again by water. All of them have reminders. And this is the new covenant. What's the reminder that God's going to come back and eat it with us and not leave these disciples alone, but is going to come back and eat the, eat the meal with them? What's the reminder? The real the reminder is, well, there's two reminders, the bread and the wine. That makes a lot of sense. All right, some other theological stuff that I want to mention that cuts a, across the grain of American, ecclesi- American church ecclesiology the way it's done, American church tradition, and I think it's done basically wrong in about 99.9% of churches in America. And this is what I call the five or the six F's of the agape feast, the agape love feast as it's called in Jude, five F's of the Lord's Supper. Number one, the first F, it was a feast. The word is dapnon, supper. A supper is a full meal. It's not a sip and a chip. The agape love feast do you just eat, drink a little bit of wine, a little bit of bread at a feast? Of course not. The first century church ate a full meal, and that was the full meal was the Lord's Supper. It incorporated the blood and the wine. It was not just the blood and the wine. It was a full meal with the blood and the wine. Excuse me, I meant to say the bread and the wine. That's a radical idea. 
How about the frequency? The second F, the frequency. They did it every week. That can be proved from the scripture. I won't do it here. Third, what's the main point? Introspection, looking at yourself to see if you've committed any sins. You know, Paul was worried about a particular church sinning when they did the Lord's Supper. They ate before the poor people got there, and they got drunk, and they feasted, had a good time. That's another point. How do you get, how do you get drunk on a little shot glass of grape juice or shot glass of wine even? You don't. They were eating a full meal, but they, what was the point? They were sinning, and, and Paul said, you're not discerning the body. In other words, you're ignoring the body of Christ. You're ignoring the poor people who have to work all day and can't get to the meal quick like you rich people do when you, and you're eating all your food quickly. I believe that's what was going on there. So that yeah, they needed to do some introspection about sin, but, but the average Lord's Supper was a feast because it's called the agape love feast. A feast is a happy time. We should be, we should be glorious and having a good time. Not sitting there in deathly funereal science, silence with our heads bowed in contrition. Now, of course, if somebody needs to confess their sin, there's nothing wrong with confessing your sin, but don't turn the feast into a funeral. Is there a future orientation or a past orientation? That's the next F. Future for orientation or a past orientation? Well, I just finished saying the reminders of me. Remembrance of me sounds like it's past, but as do it as my reminder. Sounds like the future. And also, how about when it says... When you're going to, I'm going to drink it anew in my Father's kingdom. I will drink it new in the kingdom of God. That's in the future. That's not in the past. How about when he says, proclaim the Lord's death till he comes, till he comes. That's future oriented, not past. So that's another way that people, I think, have misunderstood the Lord's Supper. And as far as fellowship, another F. I've lost track of the Fs, but fellowship. First Corinthians 10:17. because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. Which way does the causation run? Does it run from having one loaf that causes unity, or is it, does it run from we are one body, therefore we have one loaf? If you will read that verse again, and I had to read it about a hundred times because I was so entrenched in my traditional way of looking at it, the verse runs this way, because there is one loaf, we are many are one body. Eating the Lord's Supper creates unity, folks. Fellowship. Communion, koinonia, that's what the word communion, it comes from the Greek word koinonia, so does fellowship. That comes from the Greek word koinonia, no different translation of the same Greek word. Since I lost track of the five F's that I was going to tell you about, let me summarize them real quick. The first F, the Lord's Supper was a full meal. It was not a soda cracker and a shot glass of wine. It was not a sip and a chip. Second F, the purpose of the Lord's Supper was fellowship, unity, koinonia. Third F, the atmosphere was festive. It was the agape love feast. It's festive. The atmosphere was not funereal. Fourth F, the frequency was once a week. The fifth F, the orientation was primarily future and not past. All right, with those remarks behind us, let's go through a few details and I'll shut this discussion down on the Lord's Supper and I'll just make a few comments. Again, I say you could go on forever about the Lord's Supper. Here's a, here's something the King James has always led me to is uh, misled me in Matthew when Jesus says drink ye all of it and he gave thanks and gave to them saying drink ye all of it I thought it meant drink all the wine that's not what it is it means all of you guys all of you people all of y'all drink it the Home of Christian Study Bible has drink from it all of you which is what it means it doesn't mean drink all the wine of course they're supposed to drink the wine I don't I think that would have been superfluous to say that. Also, we need to notice that the phrase New Covenant is only in Luke. So this, this cup is the New Covenant in my blood. So when you're drinking that 
wine and eating that bread, you're talking you're you're that's the sign of the new covenant. And if you're a new covenant theology person, which I am, that's extremely important because that's our our covenant now is based on Jesus, not on Moses. And 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 obviously the new covenant is the new covenant is the new testament, the new covenant, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and so forth. It's not the old covenant, the old Mosaic law. Passed away as, as in the book of Hebrews. The blood of Christ is shed for the forgiveness of sins. There's so much, many verses on that, especially if you look in the Old Testament, that we all know that. I'm not going to mention any verses about that. He shed his blood for our sins. Here's another point I actually left out, uh, talking about eating and drinking in the kingdom in a new way. Mark has it, in a new way. I will drink it new. I will drink it new. Matthew and Mark both have it. In the kingdom of God and my Father's kingdom. Let me give you what John Gill says. He says, no, that's the future kingdom. The kingdom of the Son had already come. The kingdom of the Father is not till the consummation of time. And I believe that is a misconception. That's not, I don't think you can make a distinction like that. Look in Luke chapter 22, verse 30, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, the Son's kingdom, not God's kingdom, the Father's kingdom. There's no distinction there. Jesus said, in my kingdom. You will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. When when are the apostles going to eat and drink at his table in my kingdom? In my opinion, it's right after Pentecost, after the church got established, they would. And to show you that I'm not totally nuts about saying that Jesus is not going to literally eat a meal with us at the Lord's Supper, let me give you a quote from John Gill, who has got gravitas, who's not a crackpot. Quote, Christ will drink new wine, not literally, but spiritually understood, and which designs the joys and glories of heaven, the best wine which is reserved to the last, which is sometimes signified by a feast, of which wine is a principal part, by, setting, by sitting down as at a table in the kingdom of heaven with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and expressed by wine because of its refreshing and exhilarating nature in God's presence as fullness of joy. So you see, John Gill doesn't take it literally either. Here's another quote from Gill. The Jews often express the joys of the world to come by such like figurative phrases. They make mention of, quote, the wine of the world to come and of, quote, a spiritual drink, unquote, in the last days, which is called the world to come. Well, you know, the last days, that's after the Jewish age and the Messianic age. That's where you and I are right now. So I believe Jesus is eating that meal with us right now, spiritually drinking the wine and spiritually eating the food when he's there. That's why... You know, it should be a joyous time, but it should not be a frivolous time. A spiritual drink, continues Gill, in the last days, which is called the world to come. And so they, the Jews, explain after this manner, Isaiah 64, 4, neither has the eye seen, O God, quote, this is the wine, unquote, which is kept in the grapes from the six days of the creation of which they often speak in their writings. Well, John Gill's the Jewish rabbinic expert, and he says, oh, the Jews often talked about drinking the wine in the Father's kingdom in a spiritual manner. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. The wine of the kingdom, the spiritual enjoyments at the right hand of God, will be infinitely more precious and useful. From what our Lord says here, we learn that the sacrament of his supper is a type and a pledge to genuine Christians of the felicity they shall enjoy with Christ in the kingdom of glory. Well, if that kingdom of glory is, comes at Pentecost and not at the second coming, well, then that means that we, when we eat the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating actually the antitype, not the type. This in a new way, Adam Clark says, when Jesus says, I will drink it with you in a new way, I will drink it with you new. He says that in Matthew and Mark. Adam Clark says this, that is, quote, that is, I shall no more drink of the produce of the vine with you, but shall drink new wine, wine of a widely different nature from this, a wine which the kingdom of God alone can afford. 
The term new in scripture, scripture is often taken in this sense. So the new heaven, the new earth, the new covenant, the new man mean a heaven-earth covenant man of a very different nature from the former. It was our Lord's invariable custom to illustrate heavenly things by those of earth and to make that which has last been the subject of conversation the means of doing it. Thus he uses wine here, of which they had lately drunk, and on which he had held the preceding discourse, to point out the supreme blessedness of the kingdom of God. So, I think that's some pretty good evidence that this Lord's Supper is a type of, a picture, a sign of the new covenant, and we're in the new covenant now, so when we eat the Lord's Supper, we're eating and drinking with Jesus, folks. And it should be a full meal. A full meal. That means meat, potatoes, pork chops, barbecue chicken, whatever, chicken chow mein, whatever it is that you eat, along with bread and wine. And by the way, there's a, I've noticed a lot of people start using white grape juice and white wine for the Lord's Supper. Uh-uh, folks. We should keep the symbolism as close as we can. That's why we have symbols. Symbols point us to spiritual realities, and Jesus' blood was not white. It was red. So if you got it, I mean, I realize if you don't have it, you can't use it. Hard cases make bad law. But if you got a choice between red wine and white wine, I per personally think white wine tastes better. I never drink red wine when I can get white wine. But for the communion, it ought to be red wine to symbolize his blood. That's a minor point. I'll shut down this audio right here. I hope you enjoyed it. All right, I'm returning from my splice of Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 25. The Lord's Supper is now over. Jesus and his disciples will now head to Gethsemane. This is all described in passages in John, John chapter 14 through chapter 17, which we're, of course, not going to cover until we get to John. But what happens is Jesus gives a farewell discourse at the supper. He promises of them the Holy Spirit will come. That's in John 14. Then on the way to Gethsemane, he gives them another discourse, again, giving them comfort and talking about the abide in the vine and lots and lots and lots of, lots of teaching. On the way to Gethsemane, that's in John 15 and 16. And then in John 17, he gets to Gethsemane and he makes his intercessory prayer to the Father. Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. And so then he now arrives in Gethsemane which Luke takes up in Luke chapter 22 verses 39 through 46 and we will do that in the next audio I hope you enjoyed this one